Good morning. Greetings to each of you this morning in Jesus' name. Well, I've been preaching kind of a series of messages, and Darren and I were talking this morning, and I realized maybe I didn't uh, share enough with you at the beginning about the purpose of that. Um, we're looking forward to this members meeting in a week and a half, and um, I'm sharing these messages with you thinking about building the church. And I talked about that at the, at the beginning, but not just about building the church, about how we build the church, and about building the church through our spiritual lives. And so a lot of what I've been talking about is focused on our inner spiritual experience, our experience with God and what that means and, and then how that is fleshed out. And I was going to preach three messages. And last two weeks ago, when I when I preached, I ran out of time. And the Spirit was already leading me to, to a place as I was finishing up preparing for that message. I realized that there was some different aspects that I really felt like I needed to share, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get them into that message. Well, I ran out of time two weeks ago, and so I had to stop before I was done. And so I'm inserting another message uh, into those three and to make it four messages. So I'm not going to get finished. I don't preach again until the middle of October, so I'm not going to get finished before the members meeting with this series of uh, messages. But um, I was preaching on Christian spirituality. And so it's this, this message is a continuation of that. We're just going to pick up kind of where we stopped last message and start again. But in the first message, I, I focused on human spirituality and, and that it's the Bible presents it as living and dead, and it's defined by our choice. And then the second message focused on what living Christianity, what living spirituality or Christian spirituality looks like. And I defined that for you with uh, a two-line quote. Christian spirituality is not the collection of religious knowledge or thoughts. It is the shaping of who you are within. It is the forming of the mind of Christ in the inner person. And so, kind of define what I mean by Christian spirituality. The forming of Christ in you. It's not just the fact that you may have memorized the Bible. It's not just a collection of religious thought or knowledge, but it's the shaping of Christ in your person. Then I moved into um, the thinking about a little bit that you are both spirit and body. And in 1 Peter 2, 5, it says this, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So you as a believer, as a Christian, are part of the family of God. You are part of God's spiritual house. But you have something to do. You're to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Your state of being is part of God's spiritual house. Your action is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? What does it mean to offer spiritual sacrifices to God? The Bible talks about spiritual sacrifices. 
Paul appeals to us in, in Romans 6, Paul talks about the new birth. And then he talks about the Christian in chapter 8, walking by the Spirit instead of by the flesh. And then he goes on to flesh that out, and he talks about the uh, being grafted in, the Gentile believers being grafted into the family, to the tree, uh, to the family of God. And then he says that on the basis of that in Romans chapter 12, and this is where we were looking at Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So he's saying that we present our bodies on the basis of this spiritual being part of his household. We present our bodies, the external part of who we are, our external lives. We present our bodies a living sacrifice to him. What are the spiritual what what does it mean to be a to give God spiritual sacrifice? It means to give our lives to Him, our external lives, what we do. It's also on the basis of the fact that we have presented our internal being as a sacrifice to Him. So it's our, our whole body. And then in verse two, it lays out two points. Be not conformed to this world. What does that look like? Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, point two, by the renewing of your mind. So it says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. We're looking at the, the idea of how our physical, the first part of that, how our physical existence has an effect on our spirit. So the things that we do affect who we are spiritually. Be not conformed to this world. I'd like to think about that just a little more this morning. I'd like to think about what the world is. Be not conformed to this world, so we should know what the world is, right? We have to. We're not going to be conformed to it. The Greek word there for world is A-I-O-N. I think it's the word that we get the word eon from. Because that's about exactly how it's spelled. It means this age. Be not conformed to this age. You see, we're living in a in an age of time. This age has a spirit, a manner of life that it is living out and it's saying we're not to be conformed to this age we're not to be conformed to the manner of life that is being lived out by those around us but rather we're to be transformed in John 2.15 it says love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him now that world is a different Greek word. That's cosmos. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's talking about the universe, the cosmos that we live in. Then it goes on to say, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
So it's saying that in this cosmos, the life that's being lived out is a life of lust and pride. The spirit of this age is a spirit of lust and pride. It will continue to be. It was when the Bible was written. It will continue to be the foundational principle of the spirit of this world is lust and pride. We talked about that in Sunday school class. That this world is driven by its flesh. It's driven by its lust and by its pride. And as long as we are in bodies of flesh, we're going to be susceptible to temptation. In the book of James, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted of evil, neither tempted he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So be not conformed to this world. Do not allow yourself to be drawn in by the lust of the flesh. To be pressured into following the system of the world, the spirit of the world. Ultimately, it will lead to your death. You will follow that. So this idea of be not, that's an idea of a negative, something for us not to be. But we were designed to live with purpose. And that's why the second part of this is so important. I was thinking as we were talking in our Sunday school class, most of you weren't there to hear our discussion, but we are talking about that we need to die on a regular basis. We need to die daily. And it just kept coming back to my mind. Is that all that's entailed? What's the point of dying? Well, the point is that we can live. You see, we were designed to live, not to die. But we die so that we can live. If we simply focus on the negative of being separated from the world, we're just simply going to empty ourselves. And we're just going to be empty. But that's not what God wants us to do. He doesn't just leave us with the negative. He gives us a positive. He says, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So who's to be transformed? You are to be transformed. Is it just your mind? No. It's you. It's all of you. It's all of who you are that is to be transformed. Body and spirit but it happens through the renewing of your mind. Jesus talks about how that what is inside of us comes out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so God doesn't want us to just be empty of the world. He wants us to be filled with His fullness. But that transformation isn't just supposed to happen to our heart, 
It's to be a transformation that changes our life. It changes who we are completely. It's a transformation of the entire being. Now, Brother John went to Philippians chapter 2 last Sunday, his message, and I'd like to go there again this morning. You can turn there if you'd like. Philippians chapter 2. You see, Christ gave us an example. Peter says that we should follow in his steps. So we're thinking about the renewing of the mind that operates in us to change who we are and how we live. To change our complete being. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, I want to look at one thing specifically right now, and that's in verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient. Brothers and sisters, this morning, humility begets obedience. Christ's heart was a heart of humility. And out of that heart of humility came obedience. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Obedience begets joy. So if we move to, you don't have to turn there, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 talks about Jesus' obedience to death. He says, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, beyond the obedience was joy. The obedience was painful for Christ. Obedient unto death. Beyond obedience, there was joy. We have to have all three of those building blocks in our lives. Humility, obedience, joy. Our root must be humility to build individually and to build as a church. An open heart. What kind of a heart is God? Appreciate. Is it blessed? An humble, contrite heart that the Lord thou will not despise. Let's break down now these verses in Philippians 2 just a little bit. So it says in verse 6 that being in the in Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not Robert to be equal with God. Brother John talked about this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, did not deny who he was. He accepted who he was. Did that keep him from being humble? 
not. In fact, humility is not a denial of who we are. Humility, quote from Brother Keith Crowder, humility is not Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It is seeing ourselves as God sees us. So humility is not a denial of who we are, but rather an understanding the truth about who we are. Jesus understood the truth about who he was. As a man, did these two things. He made himself with no reputation and he took upon him form of servant. What is reputation? Reputation is who I represent. What is your reputation? Or maybe we should ask what reputation do I want to build? Do I want to build my own reputation? Do I want people to see me as someone? Or do I want people, as they look at me, to see God? You see, Jesus' life was centered around people seeing God. Not about building his own reputation. Not about building his own. He said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He was not here. He did not come to build his reputation. He came to bring glory to God his obedience to God. And in that, he made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant. What is a servant? A servant serves other people. Now why would God serve man? Because Jesus humbled himself. He took a lower place to serve. Here's a definition of a servant that Dana pointed out to me in a reading this week. One that makes painful sacrifices and complies with the weaknesses and wants of others. Christ came to serve. I was thinking as I as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about that every human action, in some way, it seems like can be traced back to either serving or being served. I do this because I want to serve someone or because I want to be served, or I do this either for my reputation or for God's reputation. And I think as, as believers, we need to evaluate in our lives why we do the things we do. Down to the very simplest things that we do. Whose reputation am I trying to build? Who am I trying to serve? 
maybe it's not something that is a right-wrong issue in and of itself. But when we think about who I'm trying to serve or whether I'm trying to be served, you see, then that changes the foundation of why it's being done. Are we people whose, whose mindset is not to promote our own reputation, but to, rep- but to represent God? Is it to take the lower place in my brother and to serve him? Did Jesus need to die for himself? No. But he subjected himself to death for us. Are we people of an humble spirit? Do I look through life through those lenses, through the lenses of humility, representing God and serving those around me for God's glory, not for my own glory? I have three quick points that I'd like to make in relation to our inner condition and how humility plays into these. The first one is coherence of thought, of spirit and mind. Now, in the last message, I told you about three a woman that had three sons, and they were disobedient, and she spanked them, and she told them to sit down on the bed. And the first son sat down, and he said, "I'm still standing up on the inside." And the second one kept standing and said, "I'm sitting down on the inside." And the third one sat down and said, "I'm sorry." The third son is a representative of what true Christian spirituality is. It's a change of the mind that affects the way I live. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so it's a transformation of your life. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, it says, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body and your spirit, the outer man and the inner man, together, working together to glorify God, being being coherent with each other. You see, having the right heart does not eliminate the need to do right things. It compels it. Jesus' heart of humility compelled him to obey. For the law, Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, for what purpose? that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See, the law presented a righteousness that the flesh was too weak to fulfill. But through Christ, 
the way was open for us to fulfill righteousness, to live righteous lives, those who walk after the Spirit. The first point, coherence of body and spirit. The second one, submission. 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elders. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. What is grace? It's the enabling power of God. So our humility as a brotherhood and as individuals is the basis of our spiritual strength. Because unless we are humble people, we cannot receive the grace of God. We must humble ourselves. You see, submission to God and to one another is the outworking of that humility. When we are humble people, we don't have to make a statement about who we are or about that we're right. When we're humble people, we're willing to submit to God and to one another. Our submission to each other shows that we're fully engaged in being part of the body. And I'll get maybe a little more into that in just a little bit. But it shows that I value my place in the spiritual body enough to voluntarily voluntarily submit myself to it. I'm voluntarily saying I value that my place here and I'm willing to work with my other brothers and sisters to help build all of our spiritual lives. Number three, obedience. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Where's love? It's in your heart. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus wants his body to keep his commandments. Jesus wants us to follow as his body to follow what this word says. How are we going to do that? I talked at the little bit at the beginning of these messages about that churches that take a position on actively laying out applications to the scripture are sometimes accused of being legalistic. The brothers and sisters, I believe this morning that when a church makes application to the scriptures, it does not oppose spirituality. It strengthens it. It strengthens the potential for our spiritual maturity when we make application to scripture. Because Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. 
the opposite of spirituality is not legalism. It's carnality. Carnality is rooted in lust and pride. But that's the spirit of this world. The spirit of this world is arms, flesh serving, flesh pleasing. Spirituality is rooted in humility. And I believe that legalism can happen. But making application of Scripture is not legalism. And it does not militate against spirituality. You see, Jesus never asked, and I think I've said this here before, but Jesus never asked for a person's heart. He always asked for the life. And there's a reason for that. Because he wanted your whole being. Yes, he wants to transform your your heart. But he wants to transform your whole life. And I believe that legalism happens when an individual part of our life is withheld. Think about the two brothers. The first brother, or the three brothers, the first one sat down on the outside. His action was compliant, but his heart was not compliant. It's a legalistic position, a hypocritical position. The second brother also had a hypocritical position. He was saying, I'm sitting down on the inside, but I'm standing up on the outside. You see, his whole being wasn't submitted. Jesus asked for our whole being. And I believe that this lack of complete surrender comes from several things. Lack of true conversion, materialism, or self-preservation. And I think we as Anabaptist churches need to be vigilant that we are leading people to a true conversion. Where they understand that Jesus' call on your life is more than just a call on your heart. Adora, I'm sorry. Karishi, oh, I can't think of his first name. Nabil Karishi uh, wrote the book uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And he said, For the Muslim, Christianity is more than a call to prayer, it is a call to God. Brothers and sisters, you and I, all the gospel is no different. All the gospel is for us to die. Unless we're leading people to true conversion, they're not going to experience the power to transform life. If we're drawn into materialism, if we're drawn into self-preservation after we experience conversion, it's going to lead us back to death. Romans 8.13 said, If you live after the flesh, ye shall die. Quote from Ravi Zachariah. A living sacrifice, and I'm going to say this in reference to a living sacrifice. Worship is a submission of all of our nature to God. 
all of the Conclusion for the message this morning. What is the point of this transformation? What well, says in Romans 12 2, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, God wants this transformation to happen in you for a purpose so that you can prove what his will is. One day it occurred to the members of, of the body that they were doing all the work while the belly had all the food. So they held a meeting and decided to strike but the belly consented to its proper share of the work. For a day or two, the, hand re- the hands refused to take the food. The mouth refused to receive it and the teeth had no work to do. After a day or two, the members began to find that they themselves were in poor condition. The hands could hardly move. The mouth was parched and dry while the legs were unable to support the rest. Thus, even the belly was doing necessary work for the body. And all must work together, or the, or the body will go to pieces. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. So we've been thinking quite a bit about the individual, your individual spiritual life. But now let's bring that back into a collective idea. In the story I just read, the one member, the members ganged up on the other member until they realized how much that member was actually doing for them. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11 and reading to verse 16. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we all come in the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, they grow up into him all things which is revealed, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in every measure, in the measure of every part, make an increase of the body, edifying of itself in love. So that sounds good, right? The edifying of itself in love. Is that what you want? You want this body be built up the edifying of itself in love? Is that the kind of church you want? And it begins this passage with saying, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Is that what you want? Unity of Spirit, a bond of peace in our brotherhood. But look at all that diversity in verse 11. You see, there's a whole bunch of different pieces there. Pieces of the body. How can that all work together? The only way it can work together is if we each individually are living out what God wants us to live out. We're being renewed in the spirit of our mind. That we're each healthy and each contributing our part to the body. 
You see, God has set up a authority structure, an administrative structure in the church. And I've been struggling with throughout this series, and I've thought about this, and thought about individual spiritual life building up the body. How do I illustrate this? You know, God has God has designed the church and he wants it to function and flourish. How can we understand both the spiritual, individual spiritual aspect as well as the structural and administrative part of brotherhood, of body? So here's what I here's what I've come up with. So spiritual maturity. I'm talking about what Christian spirituality was. Spiritual maturity is the level to which Christ is formed in the inner person. So that's what we're moving towards. That's what we're trying to move towards. We're trying to grow in the formation of Christ in, in our inner being. That's what spiritual maturity is. And this is, is the vehicle that takes us towards God. As we are transformed within, we move closer and closer in our understanding of who God is, our knowledge of Him. That's the power, the direction, the life. We must have that spiritual vitality. The road is the truth of God's Word. The only way to get there is through the Word of God. It's the only way for us to gain spiritual maturity, become more like Christ. The church administration is like the lines that are painted on the road. That's how it should be. And I'm not saying with this that church administration is always perfect. But I'm saying there's there's something to church administration. The Bible talks about the Bible talks about ordaining leaders. The Bible talks about us submitting to one another. Why? It gives us visible directives to help us stay the course. Will the lines on the road get us there? No. They won't get us to our destination. We have to have the vehicle. We have to have that relationship with God, that inner transformation happening. Do the lines help us if we have the vehicle? Absolutely. When I'm on a road, I value those lines because they help me to keep centered in my lane. Yesterday we were pulling a camper across the mountain. And those lines were so valuable. I'm not saying the church administration is perfect. I want to make that clear. But I do believe that in this process of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, that as a brotherhood, we must, the mature must be helping those who are less mature. There must be discipleship. There must be guidance. There must be help. 
And I'd like you to consider this. If I'm truly spiritual and I'm truly rooted in humility, then I will want direction and help from the more mature. If I'm truly humble. But if I'm carnal and proud, I will want to take my own way. I want to do my own thing. I want to push my agenda. Why does the New Testament tell the church to establish leadership and instruct the church to submit to that leadership? These are kind of hard things for me to talk about, to be honest with you, because I'm an ordained man. But I think we need to look and consider what the Scripture says. And it's really not about me at all. It's about the structure of the body that God has designed. And really, church leaders are servants. Not people who have authority, people who have responsibility to serve others. But why does the New Testament tell churches, the church to do that? For no reason? So that each person can do what they think is best? Or to give the body direction in a practical way? I'd like to look at an illustration from the book of Acts. Well, actually it starts in Romans. In Romans 14, 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So is the kingdom meat and drink? No. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. But in Acts 15, the church got together and they talked about some things. And they said, We want to make it clear that salvation is through faith in Christ. That's the spiritual change that happens in your life. But what did they tell the Christians to do? They instructed the believers not to eat meat offered to idols. So what did that have to do with the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, right? They were giving them practical guidelines to help build the unity of the church. That was the specific purpose of that. They said Moses is taught in every city Here's the things we're going to lay out that believers should do. And they laid out four things. And you know what the people at Antioch did? They gave the church of Jerusalem a cold shoulder. No, they didn't. They rejoiced because they wanted the Spirit of God to build their church. And I, I believe that shows a true spirituality. They were humble. They were willing to accept what the church was doing for their good. Recently, I was talking about a subject, and this question came up. What's the big deal? What's the big deal about this? Why, why is it necessary? Well, up in Raleigh Flats, the road is really straight. You go up there, I mean, it is just a long, straight stretch. Why you need painted lines on the road? All you got to do is hold the wheel straight, Right? What about all the wreaths that line that road? 
Was it a big deal? Did the lines keep those people from getting off the road? No, they didn't. But if you're really serious about getting to the base of Shenandoah Mountain, those lines are going to help you, not hurt you. Could you veer off the road because of the lines? Well, maybe if you got so focused on them that you blew them out of proportion. Or you just wanted to see if they were really worth anything and so you crossed them. So let me ask you that question again in a different scene. What is the big deal? Why are they so difficult? Why is it so difficult for us sometimes to submit? Is it not because of what's happening in here? Is it really the difficulty of the thing to do? Or the thing was asked to do? You see, Haman's servant had a good grasp on this. Haman was angry because the prophet hadn't come out. He was driving away with his leprosy. And the servant said, Master, He'd ask you to do some great thing. Wouldn't you have done it? Why not just go wash it? Why not do this simple thing? Haman recognized the truth of what he said and was humble enough to listen to his sermon. Are we humble enough to help the body grow? For the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And reading on in that passage. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of being. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one can edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth of offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Do I have this kind of love for my brotherhood? That I'm willing to give up T-bone steak for my brother? That's one of my favorite foods. But am I willing to give that up for my brother? I have that kind of a love for I'm not saying that's a requirement. I'm just saying you have that kind of love. Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus was being tempted by Satan. Satan challenged him to make stones into bread. This was Jesus' response. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. See, Jesus implied both aspects of who we are. A physical aspect and a spiritual aspect. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. It is not just the physical aspect of our lives that are important. We'll live by the word of God. The spiritual aspect of our lives has a priority. Luke 12, verse 12, he says, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not of the abundance of things he possesses. You know, in a hundred years from now, will any of the stuff that I 
wanted to please myself with make any difference in a hundred years from now? What will make a difference? Your life does not consist of the abundance of things that you possess or that you're able to do. Your life consists of the spiritual transformation that God wants to do in your life. And if we understand that, we're going to understand what Paul said when he said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Our external aspect of our lives is just an earthen vessel to us. And we have this treasure that we're working to, to build up and fill our inner being and just pour out. What's the purpose of all this? Ephesians 3, we're backing up here in this passage in Ephesians. Begin to read at verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'd like to go back and I'd like to substitute the word by the church. It says by the church. I'd like to substitute the word by for the primary meaning of that word is through. The old English translation says by, but other translations say translate this word through. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers of heavenly places might be known by the church Sorry, might be known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. God wants to take this body here at May Memorial Chapel and he wants to show his wisdom to the world. It is half brothers and sisters through our humble hearts that are filled up with the fullness of God that flows out love to each other and then those around us, beyond, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. 